Good evening, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been looking through the Psalms um, this fall, and Psalm 103 is um, several people I know's favorite psalm. Uh, it's kind of intimidating to preach from Psalm 103 just because um, it is such a glorious part of the Bible. It's one of those uh, chapters in the Bible that a lot of people know really well, and so to try to um, explain it or to um, preach it is is challenging just because of, of, of its inherent greatness. Um, I think it's actually hard to even figure out what Psalm 103 is. If you had to ch- choose a literary genre to, um, to explain or label Psalm 103, it's not really a prayer. Um, in most of the Psalms, he's talking to God, he's addressing God. But if you notice in this one, he's talking about God, and uh, he's not talking straight to God. But it's actually not a hymn of praise directly either. It's not like he's addressing a congregation about God. Um, It's not just a a meditation. Um, It's it's not just a statement of doctrine. It's hard to say exactly what's going on here. So the thing that I thought of that would be the most similar to what is going on is maybe a pep talk, because he's talking to himself. And this is strange. We don't do this a whole lot, especially not out loud, but David is the writer, King David, and he begins by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless uh, his holy name. And then he says it again, and then he says it at the very end a third time. So he's talking to himself. So it's like a, a self-talk, pep talk. But then the pep talk, if you notice towards the end, actually begins to morph, and it becomes more like a pregame speech that a coach would give. Um, there's a great mini-series called Friday Night Lights that my wife and I absolutely love. And if you've, if you've seen that show, I can't recommend it 100% because there's some things about it that are kind of racy. But um, Coach Eric Taylor is like a, a pastor to the town of Dillon, Texas. And Eric Taylor would always hype up the team, uh, the Dillon Panthers, before every football game. And uh, as he spoke, he got louder and louder and louder. And by the end, the football players are like jumping up and down. And they say together, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And that's kind of what's going on here with David and all of creation. Because by the end of the whole thing, it's not just David saying, bless the Lord. It's, it's the angels in verse 20. He's firing up the, the hosts, which are like a, another word for the armies of God. And not only that, but then in the end, in 22, he's talking to all of the works of God. So now we're talking about animals, we're talking about trees, um, inanimate things. The entire creation is joining with David in this pep talk. And I think one thing that it shows us is that we can actually talk to ourselves and kind of fire up our emotions by talking to ourselves. To the point that... um, Bless the Lord becomes something that could be said to anyone around us, even a dog that is um, a cat, something you know, in the in the shower to a stranger. Um, it can come out of us just to anyone around us because we are so full of the sense of God's blessedness, God's greatness. And there's a you know a statement that we all say, you know, you can't control how you feel. Uh, I just. I couldn't help it. I felt that way. We always say that. And I think it's true to some extent. You really can't help what you feel at any moment. You can't control your emotions exactly. But what you can control is what you say to yourself. And we say things to ourselves all the time. And so what David is saying is that you can tell yourself, in in this case, two different things 
One is that um, you can tell your soul, bless the Lord. And that another thing you can say is you can tell your soul, don't forget all the good things he's done for you. And so I want to look at those two things which are corresponding to verse 1 and 2. And in some ways, the first one is talking about who God is. Bless his holy name. And um, in, in some circles, you would call that praise. Praising God for who he is. And then in the second verse, he's talking more about uh, all of what God has done. And that would be more like thanksgiving. So you have praise, bless his holy name, and then in verse 2, forget not his benefits. And you kind of get the psalm uh, chopped up into those two different parts. So I'm going to structure it that way. The first part of the sermon, which is going to be about blessing the holy name of God, telling your soul, and all that is within you, uh, bless the Lord. And then the second part talking about how we need to tell ourselves not to forget his benefits, because we obviously do forget his benefits. So first of all, in verse 1, bless his holy name. And um, the name of God, as is every name in the Bible, is about his character. That's what name means. And we know that when Moses actually asked God, what is your name? You don't get this till the second book of the Bible. In the first book of the Bible, you don't really hear about his name. But in Exodus, when Moses is talking to God at the burning bush, God reveals his name, which is like his character, who he is. And his name is uh, Yahweh. That's the way we pronounce it. Some uh, would pronounce it Jehovah, but a more proper rendering is Yahweh. Actually, in Hebrew, they don't even say the name. It's just four consonants. And it basically means I am who I am. Sometimes people would say the great I am. And so when... David says, bless his holy name 11 times. Bless, uh, he says, Lord, 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 11 times. Capital L-O-R-D is the English rendition of Yahweh. I don't know why exactly that's done that way. It's an old tradition. I would prefer a Bible that actually wrote out Yahweh or just had y, capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H. But wherever your Bible says Lord in the uh, Old Testament, capital L-O-R-D, that's what it's talking about. That is his name. God is like what he is, the generic type. But Yahweh is his name, and his name is I am who I am. In other words, just I exist, period. No one made me. Um, I don't need anyone. I have existed forever. I am like nothing at all that you know. I am qualitatively completely different from everything in creation. So it's the creator and then the creation, and the gap is infinite. I am totally flawless and incomparable. You cannot make any real analogies to me, although the Bible tries to. Essentially, we don't know uh, who this Yahweh is because, uh, because he is so different from us. So all we can get is God's kind of like baby talk to us, telling us as much about himself as he can, uh, given the difference between us and him. But David says 11 times his name, Lord, Lord, Lord. And if you notice in verse 20, And 21, even the mighty angels are minions of Yahweh. David almost puts them in in their places. He says, uh, you mighty ones who do his word. In other words, all you do, uh, you you just follow what he says. These would be angels that would be terrifying to a human being. The kind that that Mary saw and she just, uh, she kind of fell apart. As did everyone who sees an angel in the Bible just completely falls apart. And David says to them, he's addressing them. I love how he's talking to angels. Have you ever talked to the angels in that kind of way? Like not an individual angel, but actually just addressing the heavenly host. He's addressing the angels and he says, you are mere minions. 
You are ministers who do his will, in verse 21. And so, uh, what we need to do is to redirect our flow of thoughts and our feelings and tell ourselves uh, there is this one who exists, who is the Holy One, who's Yahweh. He exists right now. He's upholding me. He created me, not, not me, myself. Sustain, I don't sustain myself. And this one lacks nothing, and he controls everything. Bless his holy name. And, and David is telling himself in verse 19, um, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Now that's coming from a guy who sat on a throne. In fact, David was one of the more powerful people in the world. He was probably the most powerful person that he knew in the world. A mighty king. And yet the king is saying, um, I'm not in charge. I, am, I myself am also a mere minion. Um, I do what God says for me to do. And so one thing about blessing his holy name is when you're doing that, you're telling your soul you're not in charge. You think you're in charge, but you're not in charge. You're not in control of your life. You don't rule. You're like a little tiny dust, um, a moat of dust. You know, when you squint your eyes and you see those weird things. As a child, I didn't know what those things were. But that is, um, that is what you are in comparison to God. You're almost nothing. And so David says in verse 14, uh, he knows my frame and he remembers that I am dust. I mean, think about um, just the dust around your house, which is mostly skin, apparently, that's flaked off. But that's what you are in comparison to God, is you're these particles of dust. Um, if, if too much you know, wind is made, even a small amount, it just moves around. And so that's, what, that's how insubstantial you are in comparison to God. David says, and again, David's the king. He says, my days are like grass, in verse 15. Um, like a little dandelion that just can easily just blow away. Um, I, I'm, I'm nothing. And then in verse 16, it talks about how the wind passes over and, uh, and I'm gone. And nobody can even remember where I was. Nobody could even quite say where I, where I was. I'm that insignificant. And it's really helpful to tell your soul that, that uh, in some ways you're co- cosmically very, very tiny and insignificant. And, uh, and not only that, but in verse 19, that God's kingdom rules over all. So although I'm not, I'm not significant, I do bless the one, the Yahweh, the Holy One, and His kingdom rules over all things. He is the one who is in control of everything, and he's governing everything, and he's watching over everything, and and everything's not pointless. And in our secular age, this is a really, this is a a breath of fresh air. This just will help you to, like, take a deep breath and just remember that um, random quantum interactions between elementary particles do not rule everything. You know, you might think those things rule everything. You probably don't ever think about those things. But I, I think about those things. They don't actually rule everything. That's not what makes the universe go round. And meaningless genetic mutations did not come together to produce my soul. I'm not the product of these series of kind of pointless uh, changes in, uh, in an organism. And life is not a jumble of unrelated events. That's often the way we think. Um, just being products of the age we live in, that's the message we get all the time. And I get suckered into thinking that my life is a, a series of unfortunate events. Which is, it's a great title for a, bo- a book, a series of books, a movie. You may know um, Lemony Snicket, uh, who wrote those. Uh, one quote is, uh, Fate 
is like a strange, unpopular restaurant filled with odd little waiters who bring you things you never asked for and don't always like. And I think part of the whole premise of the books is that everything is just a series of random, pointless, meaningless, unfortunate events. And I, I think it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, but David says to Lemony Snicket, no, you are not ruled by odd little waiters, you're not ruled by fate, uh, it is not an uh, unpopular restaurant, uh, you're ruled by this one who is a perfect moral deity, perfect moral being, flawless morally. And David goes into that in great detail. Notice in verse 6 and verse 8, this perfect combination of God's righteousness and mercy, balanced uh, and measured by each other perfectly in a way that uh, no human being can, can ever achieve. Uh, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. So lest you think God is permissive and soft and just let stuff go and he kind of winks at my sin and he plays favorites and if you have enough money you can just get off. Uh, no, no, God is not like that at all. God is, God is looking out for the oppressed. And so the one who has no voice at all, God is not like a bad judge who is easily bribed. God works righteousness and justice. Okay, so David says that. He's perfectly righteous. But on the other hand, David says, verse 8, he is also merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he's not a stickler who enjoys correcting people. He's not rigid. He's not like a teacher that you had that would never change the grade or never give you extra time. You know, God is not like that at all. Um, In fact, uh, it says in verse 9, he will not always chide. I love that that word, chide. This is the English Standard Version here, but I love the phrase, he will not always chide. Because we think that God is often like holding his hands in his face and shaking his head slowly, just sighing heavily. Oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know. Ben did that again. Just, or wagging his finger like, I told you so, you know, chiding, like the Dutch finger. Because in Holland, apparently, that's done so much that they call this the Dutch finger because you're like, I told you so, or you're not going to get away with that again. And God is not chiding. Uh, he does not always chide. My soul often um, grumbles along through a day, and you may not even notice the grumbling because it's so low, low, like it's very deep, like it's kind of a bass level, so you can't really hear it, but muttering under your breath, maybe not out loud, although sometimes it does come out louder, these statements like, my team, why does my team always lose? Why do we always blow a, a fourth quarter lead? Or I never get a parking spot. I'm right there and a car pulls right in right there where I was supposed to go. Or my, um, they're always out of sweet tea at Chipotle, always. They're always changing the containers right when I get there. And I, that word, like, figures, you know, that, that, just the word, it figures, shows how, ri- how ridiculous our thoughts are about our lives. I can't catch a break. I have the worst luck. Life is not fair. And there's just a lot of mumbling and grumbling. And I think David would say, you're right about life not being fair. It's not, not at all fair. That you get way, way more than you deserve. That all of us, God does not deal with us according to our sins. In verse 10. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Praise the Lord. Because if he gave you the consequences of your sin, even for a day, if he just let the consequences of your sins fall back on your head, your life would be miserable. Um, The bad attitudes you've had, the stupid decisions and the hurtful words, 
white lies and cheating and little subtle forms of stealing, if you were caught and you received the consequences for everything like that, your life would be hell. It would be horrible. And so David says one way of blessing the Lord is to tell yourself, I have it so good compared to what I should have it. No matter how bad your life is, uh, we do not get what we deserve. Think about this. Hitler was eating delicious food and drinking fine wine for years. Years and years. While engineering the Holocaust. That almost makes God seem immoral to say that. But that's just how much everyone gets way more than we deserve. And you might think, well, I'm so much better than Hitler. And so that's terrible that God would let Hitler do that. But for me, it's okay. I'm not really getting away with much. And the answer is no, not at all. The difference between you and he is not that great morally in God's eyes. To the extent that we all are so far from God. And no one seeks God. No one understands. We've all turned aside. And so the fact that God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. The fact that God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is cause for your soul to say, bless the Lord. That God does not deal with me according to my sins. He does not repay me ever, ever according to my iniquities. One time when one of our children was uh, particularly awful, uh, Margie walked quietly up to their lair. And they were in there, kind of this seething ball of anger. And Margie slipped this incredibly sweet note under their door that just blessed them. And that's how God treats us all the time. Like, we never get what we deserve. He treats us so well. He loves us so much. And he, um, he fawns over us and tells us, I rejoice over you with singing in the middle of times we're doing horrible, wicked things. And so that's, that's the appropriate response to that is bless his holy name. That's what David says. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul. In other words, rouse yourself, foolish soul, from your theological slumber where you doubt God's goodness all the time. And it's obviously not easy or else he wouldn't say all that is within me. He's kind of mustering up all his strength to do this thing that would seemingly be really easy to do, but obviously not easy to do. Blessing the Lord is difficult. That's why he says, all that is within me. You've got to really wrestle your thoughts down. You're like a cowboy with a bull, because your thoughts are going to ramble off. They're just going to gallop away into despair and self-pity and grumbling and forgetting God, which is kind of moving to the next point, is that One thing that our soul tends to do is very quickly forget about God. And that leads to point two. Forget not all of his benefits. That's a strong statement. It's stronger than saying remember his benefits. Just as if my father-in-law had said to me right before our wedding ceremony, remember to be faithful to Margie. Uh, That would would have been strong if he had said that, you know, right before I was about to... um, get married. But if he had said, don't you ever cheat on my daughter, uh, that would be even stronger. And that's what David's doing here. He's not just saying, remember God's benefits. He's saying, do not forget his benefits. Because Israel's biggest problem was always that they forgot God. And I I could have gone through at least a dozen verses, um, more than that. But I just chose four of them about when God tells Israel that you're forgetting me. So one is in Deuteronomy 10, uh, 8, 10 through 14. When you have eaten and are satisfied in the good land that I give you, beware 
beware that you do not forget me. In other words, you're going to be very, very tempted to forget me. Judges 8.33, as soon as Gideon was dead, and Gideon was like the, the judge of Israel, the leader of Israel, as soon as he was dead, Israel again played the harlot. That's a complicated phrase that I won't explain right now, but it basically means they cheated on God. Um, Israel played the harlot with the foreign gods of fertility, and they forgot me who had delivered them. So basically, as soon as there was no ruler in the land who would remind them of God, Israel just ran away into other gods and forgot about God, who had delivered them. Isaiah 51, 13, Why are you so afraid of mortal men who are but grass when you forget about me, your maker, who stretched out the heavens? In other words, when you're afraid of human opinions and stuff like that, it probably means that you've forgotten God's opinion of you. And that God has a very, very high opinion of you and loves you. And then finally, Psalm 106, 19 through 22. They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass because they forgot their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Obviously, it means that if you forget things, uh, you're going to start acting out. You're going to start acting out in different ways if you forget God. And the last one is especially pertinent because you may know the story of the golden calf this uh, ox that eats grass. And uh, what happened is God liberated Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. God set them free. God um, drowned their slave masters in the two uh, walls of water in the Red Sea. He led them through a pillar of cloud and, and got them through the wilderness so they didn't die there. He gave them water. He gave them food miraculously. He made a covenant with them. And then as soon as Moses is gone for even a small amount of time, I can't remember how small, it's like a day or something. Maybe two. As soon as he's gone, uh, they, they forget his benefits. And listen to this. Exodus 32, 4. Aaron received gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And Israel said, uh, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's the gold that God gave them from the Egyptians so that they could build a temple for him and they make a golden calf. And um, that's forgetting the, the benefits of God. But listen to God's response to that. This is incredible. In Exodus 34, 5, it says that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses. And at that point, Moses is probably like, we're about to get hammered here. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses. And then this is what God says. And God proclaimed his name to Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's when God tells Israel the the full revelation of his name. Uh, He's not just Yahweh, but now he adds to that name, I am a God who is gracious and I am compassionate, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I don't just clear the guilty. But that's essentially who I am. Compassionate, gracious, merciful. And now 500 years later, David is reminding not only his own soul, but the angels and the hosts and all the works of God, the Lord is merciful and gracious, verse 8. Slow to anger and abounding in love. So obviously David's quoting from God, which God said to Moses. Um, David is simply quoting from that very, very famous statement in Exodus 34, 5. 
I would say one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 34.5, because it's repeated so many times. And here's one of them where David basically reminds everyone, remember what God said to us right after we had created the golden calf. He said, I am a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So David's just holding up a big placard or a billboard that says, never forget, never forget that that's what God is like. Let's not forget that seminal event where we betrayed God and he said, I love you. That's who we are. We're that kind of people. And David gets kind of poetic about the whole golden calf thing in verse 11 and 12. It's kind of like a guitar solo playing over Exodus 34, 5. David um, adds these flourishes in about that event of Exodus 34, 5. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, this is verse 11, so great is his steadfast love. Now he's just kind of going off on that theme of God's love. And he's saying, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. And I was trying to get a mental image of that. And my wife saw Free Solo yesterday. And I don't know if you've heard of that or seen that, but it's about a guy who climbs El Capitan, which is in Yosemite, which is 3,000 feet straight up. I mean, it's straight up. In fact, there are parts that are going that way, so you have to climb going that way. And um, this guy does it uh, without any ropes or anything like that. Um, and he, um, apparently there are scenes in that, sh- in that movie where you, it's, you can't even really, it's, it's so dizzying, or it creates vertigo, that you, it's very hard to watch. In fact, the cameraman, when they were filming the guy, they, at certain parts, they would look away because they couldn't even stand to see what he was doing. I mean, 3,000 feet of sheer granite right below him. And he has no ropes or anything. He's, just, he's using his hands to, like, grab little crags, tiny little crags and crevices in the rock. And I, I think something like that is going on with David. He's kind of dizzy about just the height of God's love. There are times in your life where you get this image and you realize like uh, the height of his love and you just realize how crazy you are to doubt his love when you've done something wrong and you think that that kind of disqualifies you but then David realizes at this moment as high as the heavens are above the earth that's how great uh, his steadfast love is sheer rock you know face of a mountain and then he does the same thing with the width I love how he does the height and then the width and the wingspan of God's forgiveness is so staggering that really, he doesn't even use a metaphor in this one. He says as far as the east is from the west. And that's kind of absurd. Because, you know, the east and the west are not actual, they don't have GPS locations. So what he's saying is that the, the wingspan of God's forgiveness is, is absurd. It's immeasurable. I've got a pretty big wingspan. I think Mo Bamba has a, has a 7 foot 10 wingspan. It's like the largest ever recorded. And, and, and David's saying that God's wingspan of forgiveness is infinite. It's infinite. It's kind of like um, when self-condemnation rises up in you and you say, um, there's no way God could forgive this. This is too bad. And you've got to think, you've got to not forget that God has essentially hit that button, erase all data. That's a scary button on your phone. That's why they give you like two chances to undo that function. But if you hit erase all data on your phone, it's gone. It's deleted. It's not going to come back. And that's what God has hit that button, and your sins are just gone. The ones in the past, definitely those. The ones happening right now. But the crazy thing is the ones in the future, too. Erase all data. Listen to this prayer from Paul for his little church in, uh, in Ephesus. 
And I think this kind of shows the depths of our spiritual amnesia because he wouldn't have to pray this for them if he thought it was natural for him to believe these things. But, but God says uh, in Ephesians 3.18, through Paul to the church in Ephesus, may you be strengthened with all power through his spirit in your innermost being. Just that first part, let me just repeat that. Paul is praying, may you, Ephesians, y'all, it's plural, be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit of God in your innermost being. It takes that much strength so that you can grasp, because it's very hard to grasp this, so that you might be able to grasp how wide and how high is the love of Christ. So in other words, we kind of, I'm always bringing the dimensions in like this and like this, and he just says, you need to pray it farther out, farther up. Do not forget his benefits. Tim Keller, who's a preacher in New York, he says that remembering is to have something so central to your consciousness that it affects you completely. The things that should keep you confident and affirmed and soft-hearted and humble and filled with joy, unfortunately, are the things that fade from our memories. Whereas the cruel, disgusting, and ugly things stay there in technicolor. And isn't that true? I, w- I might hear ten things, nice things about my sermon after this. But the one negative thing, it could even be a ratio of like 30 to 1. But the 1 will outweigh the 30. I heard someone say that positive memories are like Teflon and negative ones are like Velcro. Because the positive memories, they just slip right off. And the negative ones, they just stick. There was actually a professor at Florida State who wrote a book called Bad is Stronger Than Good. I don't think it did that well. Um, The title is not a great one. And the professor says that bad feedback has more impact than good feedback. This has been studied. Bad impressions are quicker to form and more resistant to disconfirmation than good ones. Bad impressions are quicker to form in your mind and they are more resistant to disconfirmation than good ones. And so that's why David, knowing this, before the book was written, he knew that about our memory, and so he gives this litany of good feedback. Right here at the beginning, he forgives all your iniquities, he heals all your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and he satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And um, it might help your memory maybe to stick a little bit, these good things, if you think about how God forgave your iniquity by becoming a human who paid the penalty for that iniquity, who paid the the penalty for our sin, and how did he heal our diseases? Uh, Isaiah says, by his wounds we are healed, that God became a human, and somehow by his being wounded and sick and ailing and all the other things that happened, that is actually healing to us. How does he redeem our life from the pit? Most scholars think David is referring to death there. And we know the way he redeemed our lives from the pit was that he died with us and then he rose for us so that we would also be redeemed from death. How did he crown us with love and mercy? He crowned us by wearing the crown of uh, thorns for us that caused him to bleed. But in doing so, he was crowning humanity with love and mercy. And then... Finally, how, how did he satisfy our soul um, and make us energetic and excited like a, like a young person? 
uh, he, he satisfied our soul by losing all satisfaction in God himself. And all of his energy, all of his excitement about his father, it was all gone. At the very end, it was drained out completely. And he said, uh, I thirst. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so um, it's that that really can make it stick in your memory. And, and that's what you've got to not forget, is, is um, not just the abstraction of Psalm 103, but the concrete historical event of Jesus of Nazareth becoming um, our sin for us, so that he could give us his righteousness. And that's what we celebrate at this beautiful table, uh, where all of his benefits shine forth in greater glory than really any other place we can imagine. This is what he chose to give us? to celebrate.